ready to lace up your boots, throw up your horns, and jump into the pit. Then let's stomp the stigmas of mental illness. It's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now, Will Foley and Timothy Patrick. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Above Ground Podcast. Above Ground Podcast. Because you can't serve below. What's up, Timmy? How we doing this week, TPP? You down with TPP? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> Timmy's sitting down a little lower in his chair tonight, like he's low riding. I'm low riding. <laughs> so if we're on Zoom, that means we must be doing another interview tonight, man. And we are. We are blessed to have a social worker, musician, and cool guy, man, and I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell him tell a little bit about himself and talk about how he got into social work and how social work and school and why we need arts in school and why why kids' mental health is important. So take it away. Take it away, Terrell. All right. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Terrell Ashby. And uh, see, I uh, killed it again. That's all right. You're you're close. Um. <laughs> Uh, as Will mentioned, uh, you know, I've been um, a provider in mental health for the last 32 plus years. And, um, you know, I worked in all kinds of settings, you know, corrections, addictions, inpatient, outpatient mental health. Um, about four years ago, four and a half years ago, I made a jump um, from being in private practice to uh, working in an urban school district. Um, in an elementary school, which, um, you know, is certainly a leap of faith to some degree being at this point in my career, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm kind of towards the end of my career, you know, a decade or so left. And, um, you know, I really felt like, you know, with what has been happening with healthcare, getting sicker and sicker and sicker, um, that, you know, I wanted to kind of go out with a bang and, you know, go out leaving a mark and really trying to make a difference, you know? So, um, the urban school setting is certainly a great place to do that. So that's where I've been. Um, but I've worked with kids throughout all the settings, um, you know, addictions, mental health. Um, you know, when I was in private practice, my case was like age four to 84. So I never really, yeah. Ironic. I don't don't think think that stopped yet. And that, like, the issues for four-year-olds and 84-year-olds sometimes are very similar. Circle. You know, eventually you need people to take care of you and you got to wear diapers. So, um, but, you know, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, mental health, you know, awareness as, as I was kind of, you know, having some thoughts prior to jumping on here. And, um, you know, it's, it's always interesting that like in the face of crisis, like you know, school shootings or, you know, acts of terrorism or, you know, things like that, then mental, mental health, mental illness kind of jumps to the front for a little bit and it's a really hot topic. And then it just kind of, it dies down. So, you know, that's, that's part of the problem that, you know, help challenges, the mental health challenges that kids face every day, you know, exist, you know, Anyway, that's my intro. What do you Timmy, think? Um, Timmy, I know you're dying to ask questions. <laughs> well, no, I just, you know, it's, I just get, I get, I get a, a, a little 
uh, vexed when you know when it's about schools and kids and and how you said I agree fully with with how you said that we talk about it when something happens and then after a few days it just kind of you know dies down and and goes back to you know not talking about it anymore. Well, I think I think part of that happens too with education. You know, I mean it's not. You know, the, the interesting thing that I've found across settings and across disciplines is that, um, you know, some of the same systemic problems, you know, they're like some of the, you know, the opera, opera, operationalizing of those problems is a little bit different based on, you know, the, the um, you know, the mandates of settings, but some of them persist across settings. And I think one of the things that happens in school districts, um, especially urban school districts is that, you know, there has been a push um, across the country um, to, um, to push school districts to become more trauma sensitive, you know, because there is such a huge, huge uh, number of kids um, and families and adults that are affected directly by trauma, you know, and um, you know, so uh, there was a study that took place back in the somewhere in the 90s uh, out actually uh, near San Diego. And it was, um, you know, a health healthcare organization called Kaiser Permanente. And they they started looking at, you know, the incidence of trauma amongst the populations. So they came up with. Um, it's uh, called ACEs. Yeah, we've talked about it on the podcast before. So the adverse childhood, uh, childhood experience. So interestingly enough, you know, the, the community in which they did their study was predominantly middle class and upper middle class Caucasian folks, you know, and their numbers were astronomical in that population, you know, so more work started taking place and, you know, there's been push for school districts, especially urban school districts to become more trauma sensitive. But the irony is that, there are still the same mandates in the school system. And that is, you know, standardized testing, you know, right. uh, graduation rates, all of those things that, you know, you reach this proverbial crossroads where, you know, to be as sensitive as you need to be to accomplish, you know, providing resources, the necessary emotional, social, emotional supports to the kids, you know, you have things systemically that are working against, now, so like, you know, New York State education can say, oh, yeah, that's wonderful that you're, you know, trying to be trauma sensitive and trauma in, you know, trauma informed, trauma sensitive, trauma responsive is the continuum of that. So, um, but your scores suck. <laughs> right. And that's all they're looking at is scores. They're looking at all those scores and they're going, it doesn't matter if you've helped kids stay alive. Well, in the test, you know, the standardized tests don't add accurately represent diverse population you you had mentioned like uh you know the, how some of the schools are going towards trauma um will am i getting like a yeah like dude, and it's, i don't know it's if because turl you're not wearing headphones dude or anything is that your mic that's that's cranked up a little bit loud i can't really i can't really hear any echo sounds okay. fine oh, okay Oh, it sounds better now. Actually. Is that better? Yeah, there's no echo now. I okay, turned, yeah. It might just be because it's loud. Because sometimes right. when you turn it too loud, it gets too much. Well, no, you, 
uh, you had mentioned about how some schools are going towards the trauma and, you know, looking into that area, but um, especially with everything that's going on, I'm hearing more, I hear more and more of, uh, you know, people getting rid of special education teachers and getting rid of like, um, you know, the ALS and IEPs and all these things. So I, I think, you know, you can say we're going towards trauma, but I think as a whole, we're, we're moving backwards. You know, we're doing, we're doing less, I feel like, from, from what I have, have read and, and talked with different people in different school districts. Well, I think, you know, school districts handle things in their own unique ways, you know, and they kind of operate in a vacuum, many of them, you know, so, um, you know, NISCUNA school district will handle things and budget things and prioritize things differently than a school like Schenectady City Schools or Boston Spa Central Schools or some of the suburban schools. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, they're really limited to how much special ed stuff they can do, you know, do away with because it's, it, there's a state mandate. However, that being said, you know, there is a push, um, to, you know, declassify kids as soon as possible. And, you know, there's some legitimacy to that, you know, it, it historically has been kind of a black hole and special education has evolved tremendously um, since, you know, the eighties and nineties and, you know, early two thousands, you know, so, um, you know, I think as special ed, um, services, um, have matured and, um, become more evidence-based practices, um, that, you know, it doesn't create a need to get rid of services, but it, you know, it stops the bottlenecking of kids being classified. Well, do you think that different, offering different services would be actually a benefit to these kids, man? Offering different types of services. I mean, obviously, like art stuff or even just like different things because peer well, that's support. The stuff, that's the stuff that gets caught first in budget cuts. Like, well, right, it does. But isn't there a way to get these kids to do it themselves, like to empower them enough to give them the tools to say, you start your own peer group? Well, well, yeah, I, I I agree with what what Will was saying, but like, Timmy, turn your mic down just a tad, dude. Just like one notch on your phone, because I think that might be where it might be. Coming Is that from. better? Yeah, it's better. Sorry. All right. So, it, I you you talked. To, I maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but you talked about like categories or something like that, putting kids into. So kids have to be classified to be classified to be special education services. Right. And right. Just, to that there's what they call 504 services which is not it's handled by the committee for special education in each school and kids are evaluated but they're provided with accommodation so it might be preferential seating it might be more time for tests testing in a in a different in a separate room some kids struggle with processing information so they may have to test red but i'm but what i'm saying is that 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 is uh it seems to be some of the the city's school districts that i've talked with are are getting rid of that i'm not not sure how they're able to legally do that but yeah Yeah, i I mean everything's possible i guess that kind of leads me to that question because you had said it was because of the state mandates is it actually better to mandate some of this stuff than it is to leave it up to the school districts or is it does it matter if it's mandated because maybe some of the school districts aren't living up to their 
well, responsibility. I mean, with any like, you know, public service, you know, it's like there's the availability of it and then there's the accessibility of it. Right. Yeah. And accessibility has been a problem with mental health forever. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's like, um, yeah, everything goes full circle. You know, it goes from, you know, in the seventies, they had the big deinstitutionalization of mental health and it went to the other extreme where you had folks, you know, out in the public in much lower acuity leveled treatment that really needed intensive treatment. And then, you, you know, managed care comes through, you know, like a tornado and, you know, accessibility drops off and it's really a financially based decision, um, you know, using, um, you know, mental health symptoms out of context to justify, you know, a financial decision. You know, I think with the special ed in schools, you know, I think there is push from, you know, the state um, to create a greater level of accountability for um, kids being classified and being put into special ed services and the ongoing management of that and, you know, the push towards, you know, um, reintegrating them into mainstream educational environments as much what as What are possible. your thoughts on that? Um, well, I think, um, I, you know, I think it's, you know, I was practicing uh, prior to managed care and then at the beginning of managed care. And, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was lucky enough, you know, growing up in the field to be trained by, you know, clinicians that were very much evidence-based focused clinicians. So, you know, when managed care came along and it created this like huge accountability, you know, barring, you know, the extreme end of that, of course, you know, there is a legitimate piece to, you know, managed care, which is, you know, it's not you know, it's, it's not good practice to use your hospital emergency room as your primary care doctor, you know, because right. it drains resources from the general fund. There's a lot of bad debt. It creates, you know, huge financial burdens on hospitals and premiums of people who pay for insurance. Um, but there's an accountability as a practitioner to just to be able to justify what you do, you know? So, um, you know, I've always been okay with that because of, you know, being an evidence-based practitioner, you have the ability to communicate exactly what you're doing, not just to, you know, the, the folks that are, that are paying for the services, you know, from the insurance end, but the, you know, patients as well, you know, so I think it's, you know, that type of practice and that type of accountability creates opportunity for providers, whether that is within the, the umbrella of special education, whether that is under the umbrella of outpatient or inpatient mental health or addictions or whatever it is, you know, it, it, it creates an opportunity for patients to be more actively involved in their own, you know, outcomes, you know, so that they're much more of an active part of the process from start to finish. So in the context of special ed, you know, this individualized education plan that kids in special ed have that address, you know, goals from reading, writing, you know, um, social, emotional, those types of things, you know, it's almost like a treatment plan and it's updated quarterly. Um, and you know, there's parent involvement, there's, you know, um, 
sometimes quarterly, sometimes uh, bi-quarterly meetings, and then a year-end meeting to talk about the next year and all the progress. So I think, you know, there is a level of accountability there, and I think there's a push to further increase that because, you know, there still is this element of kids kind of going into special ed and just kind of staying there. You know, and then it's like, okay, so what happens when school is over? You know? Um, so that kind of leads to the question, though, is that if they're just kind of staying there, is that is that a fault of the system? Or is it that the child is, is over overburdened and doesn't maybe does need more a different level of services because they're not necessarily getting everything they need? Because if they're just kind of staying where they're at, wouldn't they – develop a little bit better well i, I think, think. um academically you know it, it it seems like you know it's a lot more it's a lot more you know, the academic end of that okay end of it. um you know, one of the good things is that state ed has moved away from this model it's moving away from this model of common core you know which is the big controversial move from state ed it's a bunch of garbage. You know, common core learning, and then moving much more towards a model of social emotional learning. So it has built in components of social emotional um, life built into the academic part of school. You know, so it's, it's intertwined. And, you know, That's folks good. in my position as a social worker partner with teachers, teachers and, you know, paraprofessionals and, you know, administrators to try and integrate social emotional um, content into the academic portion of, of the school. That would be excellent for sure. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, it, the emotional IQ is, is just as important, if not more important. Yeah. I mean, you have to create avenues, you know, for kids to be able to, to express those things. I mean, tons of kids struggle with anxiety and depression, whether that anxiety is the level of, you know, school phobia or whether it's just generalized anxiety, and, you know, due to, you know, work frustration. Right. But, um, being able to give them avenues to be able to talk about those things, because what we know is, you know, that those things, you know, they haven't, you know, they have an etiology or an origin to them. But also, you know, they manifest over time and anxiety, especially is a process that kind of fuels itself. It just doesn't go away. Also, too, you know, we live in a world, you know, where we tend to look for symptom management rather than solutions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, antidepressants, you know, antidepressants are wonderful things. But, you know, we live in a world where, you know, somebody, you know, watches the, you know, commercial on television with the sad piano music and the sad face boy, I feel like I look like that, and boy, that's really sad, and I think I might be depressed. And I go on the website to whatever big pharma company is promoting that antidepressant, and I take the test, the quiz, and of course, you know, I'm depressed. So I go to my primary care physician, and I say, you know, I think I need drug A because I think I'm depressed. Well, what makes you think you're depressed? Well, I watched the commercial, I took the quiz, and I scored an 8 out of 10. So, you know, the the doctor looks at the formulary and sees if that particular one is covered by the insurance. If it is, this is the starting dose. This is how you taper it up. Boom, 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 boom. Usually what happens is that very quickly there's like a placebo effect because people want it to work and we're kind of programmed to think that if we take a pill 
it'll work. And in a lot of cases, it does in terms of, you know, fighting a cold and managing symptoms versus the cold leaving your system and actually recovering from the cold. So what happens is that most people go on antidepressants or other types of medications and they never do the talk therapy part of it, which is really the solution. Once that chemical works, all it does is it narrows the field of the chemical imbalance that's connected to the depression and the anxiety so that you can then do the talk therapy, the solution-based, the true cognitive you know, behavioral therapy that addresses the irrational thought patterns associated with either anxiety or depression. And without that, you, see, you know, you, I saw people for years that, you know, they've been through, I'm doing a, an initial history and I'm asking them about medications and they're like, yeah, I took that one. Then I took that one. Then I took that one. It worked for a while and then it didn't, then it worked, then it didn't. And usually, you know, after the placebo honeymoon period wears off, you know, they realize that it's not really working you know, what is the tendency? They go back in to see their doctor and he says, hey, how you doing on that med? And it was working good, but now it's not working anymore. Well, let me give you more, you know, until they reach the maximum dose and then they try another one and they try another one and they try another one, you know, and they never really get to the root, you know, anxiety and depression. The root is the irrational thought processes, you know, or the depression-based thoughts or the anxiety-based thoughts that just kind of wreak havoc and kind of spin us in circles it creates right. that it could it could uh, simply have nothing to do with any kind of chemical imbalance as well well usually by the time it becomes clinical in terms of anxiety and depression you know i mean most of us experience some level of anxiety and depression based upon life events you know negative sure. life events they happen pressure at work a loss of a job a loss of a loved one a loss of a pet you know those things naturally produce Grief. those types of symptoms but when they persist you know, and persist and persist, um, you know, and reach that, you know, six months or more up to a year or more, you know, then things really do start to change chemically. That's when the depression lingers around enough to actually begin to um, alter how your body processes things like serotonin, norepinephrine, adrenaline, and all the chemicals that are connected to those ailments. So if you think about kids, you know, I mean, people are really hesitant to take kids to the doctor and put kids on medications other than like stimulants for ADHD. Um, but a lot of times, you know, what they're looking at, you know, you, you, you see what you look for sometimes, you know. And so if you're looking for ADHD, then you see right. ADHD. And a lot right. of times it's not ADHD. You know, it could be something called dysregulated mood disorder, which is kind of the childhood equivalent of bipolar disorder. Uh, anxiety, depression, you know, and um, usually what happens is, you know, the, you know, the, the, the medication of choice uh, and actually the most effective medications for true ADHD are stimulants. But if you give someone who has bipolar of any kind, a stimulant or anxiety of any kind, a stimulant, it tends to send their anxiety uh, off the charts and can actually be pretty hazardous in terms of how it progresses and how quickly it progresses. I think that, uh, I mean, may maybe I'm wrong, but I think that uh, we are so quick to uh, focus solely on medication as well, you know, and there's so many variables as far as like our diets, our sleeping patterns, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I don't feel like that, that, that part of it is discussed enough. Right. And it, you know, it's, you know, folks that are prescribing medication, there are a lot of them, you know, I mean, a great number of people are not seeing 
psychiatric prescribers. They're seeing primary care doctors. They're seeing right. And if you think about it, general practitioners, they have to deal with scraped elbows, strep throats, you know, uh, acne and depression. You know, I mean, they, they have to deal with everything, you know. So when you're dealing with someone who um, is, you know, a psychiatric prescriber, that could be a psych nurse practitioner, it could be a PA that's kind of concentrates on psychiatric stuff or a psychiatrist, you know, their filter is much more um, pointed towards those types of medications. So they could tell you, you know, this is better than this for this age bracket or, you know, a female who is pre-adolescent versus, you know, a woman who's premenopausal versus, you know, a woman who's in her thirties or a guy in his thirties, you know, so that's, you know, and there's also advances now, which, you know, I'm surprised that they're not more widespread. I mean, there is a, you can do very mild uh, genetic testing with just a swab. You send it to the lab. It's a $20 test. And they can basically tell you in that, in the printout that you get, that if you take an antidepressant, this one will work. This one will not. Your body will respond negatively to this one. It will respond positively to this compound. And it's truly amazing. Thinking, wow. You know, the process I was talking about before where people go through trial and errors of like months, years, whatever, through multiple rounds of medication. Does insurance know. cover those? Do you know? They didn't for a little while, but they do. I believe most insurances cover them now because, I mean, if you think about it, it's really a cost saver for them. Because it is. I, I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that they could do that would be, you know, saving costs. I think that they don't do. That's the only reason why I asked because normally, you know, when something makes sense, at least to me, it, it usually results in they, they don't do it. <laughs> so uh, the insurance companies, they just have their own way of thinking. And, you know, it always boils down to dollars and cents in the short term, you know, and they don't always think about the long term, which gotcha. is interesting. Um, or they would be offering a lot more preventative medicine than they do, but uh, probably about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, um, a, a new treatment came out for opiate addiction and alcohol addiction called Vivitrol. And it's an injectable form of naltrexone. Naltrexone kind of came out in the mid, uh, like late eighties, early nineties. And they used it for cocaine addicts to curb their cravings for cocaine. And, um, you know, they um, came up with an injectable form of naltrexone. Now, with that, there is, it's naltrexone, Narcan, and a couple other compounds in that. And it's one injection every 28 days. And it has had, like, an amazing success rate versus Suboxone. Huh. Yeah. Suboxone is like the new methadone. You know, huh. you go and you stay on it and you stay on it and you stay on it and stay on it, you know? And, you know, there's a lot of kind of shady things going on in the Suboxone delivery world too. You know, you've got doctors that participate with insurance companies, but for the Suboxone services, they don't take the insurance. It's cash and carry, which, get, which usually goes against most insurance contracts, you know, but you know, people can do whatever they want until someone catches on and, you know, <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, I mean, you got a lot of things that are going on. So, you know, if you think about, you know, back to the kids in school, you know, kids come to school every day and, you know, they, you know, they are subject to whatever they encounter 
before they get to school. Mm -hmm. They're going to encounter when they get home from school. And a lot of times our kids, you know, I remember growing up and just counting the days to summer vacation, you know, counting the days to winter break. You know, we get kids that they don't want to go home for winter break. You know, they want to come to school. You know, school for them is, is one of the safest places for them emotionally and physically. Right. You know? So I think, you know, as this social emotional learning continues to evolve, you know, I think what that is going to do, um, and hopefully it will be able to, you know, evolve, you know, and it I would hope so. It sounds like it's a, a good thing for sure. You know, but the true question will be, okay, so now you institute social emotional learning, you know, how much, you know, are you going to put in that basket and kind of, you know, help foster that and kind of lighten up on the standardized tests and how everybody falls in line together that system has to become much less discriminatory. You know, it's not real numbers anyway, because you're not truly, you know, if you're, you're administering tests that aren't, you know, culturally sensitive, um, then you're not getting accurate numbers anyway, you know, so you don't know what someone's ability is. So I think, you know, the social emotional learning will equip kids who struggle with some of the mainstream learning mechanisms to have, other avenues to not just learn academically, but to um, address, you know, the social emotional issues that they bring to the table. Absolutely. Yeah. Subsequently can become more attentive, better learners and get academically and succeed, you know, cause that's yeah. really the goal, you know, but I think, you know, they also have to look at, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm biased because, you know, my first career was in music and, um, you know, I know, you know, firsthand how, you know, music impacts someone's ability to heal, someone's ability to emote. Me too. Um, I'm you know, proof of it too. You know, I mean, I left the music business full time because, you know, by the time I was 20 years old, I was a heroin addict. You know, and I got, had to clean up. I got sober when I was 20. I've been sober 35, almost 36 years. Congratulations. Congratulations. I never intended to be, you know, I never intended to work in addictions. It's just, you know, social work back in the 80s really wasn't a real high-paying gig, you know. So it's like, it's so still not, is it? <laughs> Where do I take the job at, you know, the addictions place? Okay. Um, it's all, it's 40 cents more an hour. I'll take the addiction. So, um, <laughs> do, you, do you think that going into that line of work was, uh, somewhat therapeutic for you as well? Um, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I, again, you know, it's, uh, the addictions field in particular is one of the, one of the few areas in the field that still is very much, um, staffed by, you know, quote unquote, wounded healers, you know, folks that get into recovery and the state, you know, legitimately promotes that, you know, people can become, um, I think they call them peer recovery coaches. I'm working, I'm working on my peer certificate right yeah. now. So, you know, it's a great thing. You know, I think, you know, back, you know, when I started working in addictions, the addictions and the treatment world was dramatically different. I mean, at the time, the state had two separate agencies. There was an alcoholism agency and there was a drug agency, a substance abuse agency. So even at that time, the state, you know, the mandate wasn't even seeing it as, you know, addiction, you know, it was seeing it as alcoholism. Yeah. Substance right. Abuse. You know, um, 
you know, and then they started to look at, you know, um, you know, folks coming into the field that were, you know, multi-problematic folks, you know, um, you know, it wasn't just about addiction. It was addiction in, in, um, you know, in concert with depression or anxiety or trauma or things like that. Um, you know, so that's evolved. So I think, you know, it's the addictions field, I think needs to evolve more. Um, and they need to, um, what they're dealing with now, especially with like, you know, the opiate crisis and the accessibility of, you know, life ending recreational chemicals, you know, I think, um, you know, there has to be a greater push for, um, a deeper clinical body within the addictions field. I think it needs to evolve a little bit, you know, some of the stuff, you know, that, you know, I do consulting from time to time and, you know, I read treatment plans and, you know, it's like a time machine to some degree, you know, the treatment plans look like the treatment plans from the eighties, you know, um, they're talking about the disease concept of addiction. Well, well that's not person centered. It hasn't been a concept since 1962, you know, it's, it's been a disease since 1962. But, um, you know, it's still, um, you know, the real tangible um, things are the evidence-based practices, you know, like cognitive therapy. So, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, when you get political regimes that come through, there are initiatives, you know, that go, you know, that they, that they start as part of their, you know, term, you know. Sure, you know, yeah. Director of OASAS, you know. I'm the new director of OASAS, and, you know, one of my initiatives is going to be this. And the problem is, is that it, a lot of times it doesn't, it doesn't stay around long enough to come into fruition, even if it is the right way to do things, you know, and I remember being in addictions and them pushing for evidence-based practices, you know, and, you know, it's like, you know, hallelujah, you know, um, you know, cause if you look at the research, you know, that's really what works, you know, um, and has been most studied as opposed to, you know, if you look at the research on addictions treatment, you know, thank goodness funding isn't based on research, you know, it wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be a lot of, you know, uh, inpatient facilities anymore. Um, you know, they're not paying for, you know, they're not paying a, a, a lot now for inpatient opiate detox, you know, because by and large opiate, you know, detoxification isn't potentially lethal. It's horrible. And, you know, people going through it wish they would die because it's horrible. But, you know, that's, that's what, so I think, you know, I think eventually, you know, they talk about it, you know, like they've talked about things for, for decades that, you know, finally come into partial fruition. But I think at some point, OASAS, which is the state office of alcohol and substance abuse services and the office of mental health will truly merge. And then you'll see a new kind of collaborative, you know, transition um, to more evidence-based treatment. And I think that's going to help um, addiction treatment tremendously, you know, both from the standpoint of making resources available to practitioners and, and, um, patients and facilities, but to kind of look at things through a different lens and, um, you know, be able to use things that have, that have been more successful in other areas, you know, cause it's not, it isn't really apples and oranges when you talk about an emotionally based illness, you know, it's not, you know, addictions has always been treated as a behaviorally based illness and it's not, it's an emotionally based illness, just like other illnesses, you know, so you have to address it as such. That's so sort of an Eastern way of looking at it actually. 
Because the I mean, Western model is not set up that way. The Western model is set up to fix things. No, but, you know, they've always used, you know, catchphrases like, you know, it's a whole person illness. It's a whole person recovery. Okay. Sure. Only offering partial person treatment. You know, it's like, right. you know, um, but it, you know, that's that universal model of like, you know, basically kind of covering, you know, if you looked at like the Olympic symbol, you know, five circles and you could take them and all make it you know twist them or turn them so they all intersect and there's like one nucleus point okay that is the point at which you have to get to in treating mental health and addictions and you know looking at treating children and helping them be successful is to try and get to that core piece you know and you kind of have to work your way from the outside in and, you know, it's kind of a whole person solution. So you have to look at, you know, a person's spiritual life, spirituality, not necessarily religion, but spirituality in terms of how they treat themselves and treat other people and their belief systems and, you know, how they deal with emotions. What do they know about emotions? Some people, you know, um, they get sober or they kind of come out of the cloud of depression, and anxiety, and they have two emotions, you know, um, anger and sadness you know, and helping them see that there's a much larger continuum. You know, I think um, just like one last addictions thing, I think part of where addictions has missed the boat is that, um, you know, they've offered, you know, a great deal of explanation and resources in terms of what addiction does, where it takes you and how to get off the boat, and where to go to try and, you know, stay sober. But the problem is, is that when people get out back into the community, you know, it's like, um, you know, my policy teacher in grad school used to say, it's like being a good humor man with no ice cream in your truck. You know, yeah. it's like, what then? You know, so it has to be, you know, things that they can translate into their own world. And, you know, one of the biggest injuries from addiction is to our limbic system, which is the pleasure center of our brains. Because what happens is that our brains get reprogrammed so that we equate pleasure with euphoric pleasure, okay? So getting high, you know, is euphoric, you know, that's euphoric pleasure. So when somebody gets sober, you know, the brains are still saying, well, that's not very much fun. You know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go sit by a lake and fish and blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really sound like, you know, that's not very euphoric. So they tend to go in the directions of things that produce euphoric responses like sex, gambling, food, um, all of those things, you know, so which are very unhealthy for addicts to do because addicts aren't well known for moderation in any kind. So no, moderation uh, is not the strong suit. No, no, it's moreism, you know, um, that's the ism, you know. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully, you know, I think, you know, I'm, I don't think I would still be working in the field if, you know, I was a, uh, you know, if I didn't, uh, you know, believe in, in, in things changing, you know, I'm an optimist, I'm an eternal optimist, you know, in terms of, you know, um, there are very few things that I've come across in my career thus far, um, from social emotional based that, that is untreatable and that doesn't have a solution, you know? So, it's just a matter of pushing, you know, like things like you guys are doing, you know, you're putting the word out there and you're getting people to 
to listen to a dialogue about, you know, what's happening and maybe how things, you know, should go, you know, the direction things should go or things that we need to pay more attention to. You know, I think that that, you know, with the trauma sensitive schools um, initiatives, you know, that's, that in and of itself is a huge step, you know, to bring that to the forefront and say, you know what, 85% of kids or more in urban school districts experience complex trauma. Okay. And if you guys talked about the ACEs thing, yeah, that's an ACE have. or more. Yeah. We yeah. all score higher than that. <laughs> I don't, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, they are what they are. I, I think that they could probably update it with something a little bit more. Um, well, here's the problem with the ACEs thing. The ACEs is something that's administered to people 18 years or older and it's retrospective. So, you know, it's okay. Well, you know, after the fact, you know, that's wonderful information. Right. You know, you know, they have to look at, you know, it's not just about being trauma sensitive. It's about being trauma informed. Yes. It's being trauma sensitive, but being trauma responsive. That's the action part, you know? So you have to do things like, you know, you, you don't want to yell at kids, you know, in the classroom, you got to be very careful, you know, on how you, you know, respond to them when you get frustrated, you know, um, you know, kind of checking ourselves as adults when we work with kids, you know, kind of checking ourselves going into it and saying, you know, I'm really having a really crappy morning. So I got to be extra sensitive on how I deal with some of the more difficult kids, you know, the ones that tend to call you names and spit at you and kick you and stuff. And, um, you know, so I have to kind of, you know, there's filters that you use both in how you enter a situation or, or what you bring of you or leave out of you when you go into a situation, but at the same time, being able to filter what they're bringing to the table. And some of the things they say do start to sound a little bit different and you internalize them differently when you start to see where that's really coming from. Do you think that there's something to be said about, um, you know, depending on the, uh, the age of the, 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 the kids that you are teaching or whatever, um, you know, like you were saying, if, if you're mindful enough to realize you're having a, a bad morning that you have to be, you know, take some extra special care and be aware. Um, do you also think that maybe there's something in saying like to the kids, Hey, you know what? I'm having a bad morning here. So let's try and like work this out. You know, like almost like being human, being real about it and like, you know, talking about it. Like, because I know for me, you know, I, I, I used to look at teachers as like, like superheroes as like, you know, they had their stuff together, basically, you know? You know, I think, um, you know, the, the best policy is genuineness, you know, I mean, little kids, little, little kids, they, they can see right through you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They can survive out in a very difficult complex world you know little little kids and you know they know when you're like pulling the old social worker trick on them or you know you're you know trying to kind of trick them into talking about stuff you know you're much better off just kind of being the genuine article um, i agree with that yeah i think that you know they may disagree with you but you you can still be you can have mutual respect for each other at the same sure time. absolutely go in um, you know, and I think, you know, another thing that, you know, part of that whole trauma sensitivity is bringing mindfulness into the school day, you know, so perfect. 
elementary school that I was at, I'm in the process of going to a different one this year, but you know, they start every day with a mindful moment over the loudspeaker. You know, I'm, I don't know if I'm a huge fan of that, but um, yeah, I know. I think that they do that at least something similar at my son's school. And I was like, on one hand, I'm like, eh, it's cool that it's they're 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 trying and they're taking a step towards it, but you know, I think more and more teachers are integrating that into um, you know the school day. You know, if you look at kids that struggle with school, okay, not even filtering in the trauma card. But kids that struggle with school, usually what it is, is it's the transitions between things, switching gears. You know? And we're talking about, you know, not to sound old or anything, but, you know, kids in this generation right now, I mean, you're talking about a generation of kids that have been dominated by technology and screens, you know, so that, you know, what that has done is that has kind of pigeonholed them into, you know, less avenues for creativity, okay, which then pigeonholes them into having less creative ways of coping with things. So if you put them in a situation like school, I mean, the demands of school only get higher for younger and younger and younger kids, you know. So, you know, you, you put those two elements together, you need things like, you know, mindful moments to bring them from one place to another place to, you know, to make it so that, you don't have to just snap your fingers and switch gears. Okay, ELA's done, now it's time for math. Now it's time for science. Now it's time for social studies. Boom, 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 boom. Because they have to be able to kind of catch up with it. That's how right. things work now, you know? Um, you know, because it's, when you're talking about the academic process, it's, it's a process that they have to engage in, which is dramatically different than, say, playing video games, which is like you can pop in and out, pop in and out, pop in and out, you know, shut it on, shut it off. You know, I mean, the shutting it off part for those of us that are parents, we know is much more difficult than the shutting it on part. Right. But, uh, you know, it's so they're doing more, you know, teachers are doing more mindfulness in the classroom so that, you know, kids are able to ground themselves. And if you look at what we we're talking about in terms of like concrete tools to combat depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, whatever it is, those are wonderful tools. And it's not yep. rock. You know, I mean, the best therapy is, you know, some of the most basic, fundamental, humanistic interventions, you know, engaging people, you know, I mean, patients would come in, you know, I had many colleagues who I respect and grew up with in the field who specialized in this and specialized in that. And, you know, I kind of specialized in people coming back, you know, for the second session, you know, um, and, you know, people want to be heard. They want to be listened to. They want to be cared for. They want to be respected. You know, it's fundamental human needs. And you have to take, you have to have a reverence for how difficult it is for them to come in and do that. You know, that's the, that's one of the differences between a good therapist and a bad therapist. You know, a good therapist is not an expert. Okay. It is someone who comes in and has an understanding and a reverence for how difficult it is for the person sitting across from them to come in and do anything that they need to do. And that yeah. they get a concrete part of the relationship from the beginning. The ones who kind of operate as, look, I've been doing this my whole life and I know what I'm talking about and you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. They're not good, you know. And there's tons of them, you know, unfortunately. And the yeah. same same with teachers, same with social workers, you know, people dealing with kids. I mean, there's a lot of people that want to be able to, 
I learned this a long time ago before I ever worked in a school district. There's a lot of people that like to work with kids, want to work with kids, but they're just not equipped. Right. You know? and it doesn't make them bad people. I just think that, like you said, they, they may not just be equipped and they may not realize it. Well, and they have to use that filter and know like what, you know, it doesn't mean that they can't, you know, can't work with kids in any capacity. You know, they have to look at what capacity was a good fit for them and what did they bring to the table that the kids can best benefit from, you know? And a lot of times you see that in organizations where somebody starts off, you know, doing A and then they end up doing D and you find out, oh yeah, it's too bad they didn't do D all along. They, they rock. At right. It. Right. That's how we fight, figure it out, though, right? <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, you know, I'm everything else. You know, it's like we, you know, as teachers or whatever role we're in, you know, um, we have to make sure that we remain learners. You know, we're learners just as much as anybody else. It's just a different context because we're providing what we're providing and we're adults versus kids. But, you know, when you stop being teachable, that's when things – that's when organizations go bad. That's when yeah, clinicians yeah. go bad. That's when treatment stops working. That's when crises come back because you can't stay ahead of it if you're not informed. And you can't stay informed if you don't continue to learn and be teachable. That's awesome. This is a good way to finish this up. We finished this podcast up with three really cool questions. Um, I've changed my second question for you because – I have a different question for you, but Tim asked the first question. So Tim, I'm going to let you ask him the first question. Do you have a favorite word or a least favorite word? Oh, uh, let's see. My least favorite word is can't. Nice. And I would say my favorite word is uh, try. That works. I like it. So I usually ask people about their pets. However, I'm going to ask you this question because I think you're the perfect person to answer this. If there was any band (laughs) past or made up, and you could play any instrument with anyone, who would it be? Wow. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Right? Not to put you on the spot, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. And would it be a different instrument than you play already? Well, you know, I can, um, you know, I play bass and I play keys and I play guitar and I sing. Um, but I can't play drums. I just don't, I can't, I'm not ambidextrous. You know, I can't, I can't break my body into four different spheres that can do things independently of each other. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, I, I probably could, but I've never, you know, you know, to embark on that, you know, rudimental drum lessons at my age. Is <laughs> but who would you play with if you could play with anybody? You know, it's like, why the hell, you know, any anybody that's been at a gig, you know, with a with a you know a real rock drummer who doesn't use like a three piece kit, or you sat through sound checks and studio sound checks where you hear doom 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 for like three and a half hours, you're like, who the heck would choose that? You know, that must <laughs> do that to the. 
Um, but I, you know, I'm in awe of drummers. You know, I think that I, I would, um, I, if I could pick an instrument that, you know, is totally foreign to me, it would probably be drums, you know, because it's just so, there's just so much to it. You know, I mean, I think about the drummers that I've played with, you know, from the most basic drummers, you know, probably could have used a few more lessons to the ones who taught that probably could have kind of used a little more coaching on musicianship, you know, and somewhere in the middle to the guys who just, <laughs> you know, like when you hear them play, you don't realize how awesome they are because they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah. I like it. That's well think, said. Think about, you know, one of the greatest bass players is probably Michael John, Anthony. John, ah. Paul, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. Oh, absolutely. Now, now as a bass player, okay, that is a later in life. I mean, I always loved Led Zeppelin. Okay. But my true appreciation of John Paul Jones came later in life when I started listening to the Zeppelin stuff and listened to him play. Yeah, he's out of he's out of this world, man. He's out of this world, but if you listen to how he plays and how he connects Paige to Bonham, it's truly, truly amazing. Wow. Oh, I'm yeah. Listen to some Led Zeppelin when I'm done after I'm um, those guys really definitely signed a, signed some kind of deal with the devil. They're not they're not human. Yeah. Now they had to pay out on the whole stairway to heaven thing. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, Timmy, you yeah. got the mic. Um, I love talking. If, if you could do anything for mental health without any restraints, what would you, what would it be? I would open up an addictions treatment facility that was not medically based. It's not based on the medical model. It would be truly based on a whole person recovery, uh, mind, body, and spirit. And that um, it would include things like mindfulness. It would include things like nutrition. It would include things like self-image. Excellent. Love it. Self, the you you want to be kind of thing. And coupling that with, you know, the fundamentals of, you know, learning addiction, staying sober. Wow, that was awesome, man. Dude, thank you. Thank you so much for being here, man. We enjoyed the conversation. It was awesome. Anytime. You know, I love to talk. And uh, thank you. You know, it's nice to be able to talk about this stuff in this forum. I don't get much opportunity to do that. Wow, dude, that was an awesome interview. What did you think, Timmy? That was great. That was great. Um, very uh very uh intelligent, very um seasoned. Seasoned man. He's got yeah. a lot to uh lot to offer for yes, sure he does yeah he does he's got a lot of guidance there man you know he's got a lot of a lot of varied experience but it does go to show that like creative people artistic people passionate people they they do make you know certain people make good construction people other people make good therapists you know what i mean you're right no yeah yeah you're right you're right and then some of us you know don't make good anything because we haven't figured out what it is yet. <laughs> well, that's all right. That's all it is. Will, that's all Will it you is. make you make a good uh, you make a good song. You make a good. Uh, uh, oh no, good... I'm not talking about me. I'm I just know. Talking I'm, just, in I'm just. I'm just saying. I know. I'm just saying, man. Oh well, thank you, just... Timmy. Was that a positive? Yeah. I'm just trying to be positive, man. I love it, man. I love it. You know, love man. You, brother, I love you. Um. So yeah, we just we're just wrapping up that last uh, interview. 
and um, hope you guys all enjoyed it. Um, interviews are, are coming along. We uh, Will has uh, some some more lined up for us. Yeah, and we um, do. as always, you can uh, star, scribe, and share. And share. That's all we ask. And you can also, if you uh, go on to the Facebook page at Above Ground Podcast on Facebook or on the Instagram, I think I shared it on Instagram too. I'll share it again. Uh, we still have our one year anniversary survey up still that you can fill out, which we'd love to have you fill out. It's just a 10 question quickie, man, to find out. Everybody loves a quickie to find out what's uh to find out what's going on in the world. You know what I'm saying? Find out what's going on in the world of above ground podcasts and see what you like, what you don't like, what you would change, what you wouldn't change. How else can they find out what's going on in the world of above ground podcast? Ah, uh, you can just go to abovegroundpodcast.net. That's where all the episodes are. That's what's going Thanks, on, Will. man. That's what's going on, dude. So until next week, be well, be safe, be above. Above Ground Podcast is in no way intended to be a substitute for professional help in any manner or degree. We are not therapists, doctors, or professionals in the medical field. These are the opinions and experiences of two individuals just like you, our peers, who live with mental illness and all of its conditions. If you or anyone you know are experiencing a mental health crisis, please go to your nearest emergency room, call 911, or you can call the National Suicide Hotline 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. 8255. Be well, be safe, be above.